Audio. This is a Crack Magazine podcast. The recording is taken from a recent conversation broadcast live and exclusively to Crack Magazine supporters. And this is a short version. To listen to the full version of all our talks and join the live Q&A sessions, then become a Crack Magazine supporter right now. Support independent journalism and support independent artists for just £5 a month. Head to crackmagazine.net slash support to find out more. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Tab, and today I'll be moderating a discussion as part of the Crag Magazine Supporters Talk program. And we're going to be talking about the uh, the mechanics, the mysteries, and the magic of drone. And with us today, we've got Sara Devachi, who is a composer and performer of acoustic and electroacoustic music using organs, synthesizers, and tape to make minimal music. Uh, her latest album, Antiphonals, came out last month on her label, Late Music. And I think she's got an album with Sean McCann on the way later this year. We've also got Arushi Jang, who is a composer who uses modular synthesizers to channel and reinterpret Hindustani classical music. And she also uses vocals and is a technologist and an engineer. Her debut LP, Under the Lilac Sky, came out earlier this year. And we've also got Harry Sword, who is a writer and a contributor to The Choirs, Vice, The Record Collector, Munchies, and The Guardian. And he's the author of Monolithic Undertow, In Search of Sonic Oblivion, which is a, it's pointedly not a history of a drone, but also it kind of is, and charts a a course through various music acts that have created and used drone sounds. And I thought we'd get started um, with you, Harry, and if I can ask you, what is drone? And how would you define what drone is? I think in the simplest terms, drone is a sustained note. That's in musical terms. So we're talking sustained, sustain, really. In philosophical terms, it's the background to life, really. So I mean, think about day-to-day life. We're surrounded by the drone pretty much from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep in terms of electricity, in terms of heating systems, background conversation. It can be anything, any kind of sustained sound, really. I think in in terms of our connection to the drone, it really stems from pre-birth. I mean, it stems from, from, we go right back to the womb. We've got two fundamental sounds in the womb. We have the beating of the maternal heart and we have the rushing of maternal blood. And it's heard incredibly loudly down there. It's actually heard at 80 decibels, which is pretty much the sound of a tumble dryer at full wax. So we think of the womb as being this kind of very, very kind of uh, calm, quiet space. And it's, it's not, it's actually really loud down there. So I think, you know, we have a connection to the drone from, from before we're born. Is that something, um, Arishi or Sarah, that you might have to, do you have anything to add to that? Both of you are artists who I wouldn't necessarily say are drone artists solely and specifically, but you both use sustained notes and ideas of drone in your work. Yeah, I would, I I kind of use the same terms, I would say, as Harry, at least musically, that drone 
is more or less sustained sound, but it's it's complicated because when you say sustained sound, there's almost this like negative connotation of something being static. And I obviously think that drone is very much not a static experience. So saying that on a basic level, I agree that sustained sound is a good way of at least referencing the the world that drone exists within. However you interpret that can vary a lot. Um, the only thing I would add is I, I don't think of it as one note. Often I think of it as a cluster because it has obviously even like one note has different kind of harmonics and like different kind of frequencies that you can highlight. So there's a lot more to it than just, you know, one note or one fundamental frequency. Yeah. This idea of um, sustained, I guess, maybe your chord is not the right way to put it, uh, considering your background, Arishi, with, um, you know, Hindustan classical music and, you know, training at the Ravi Shankar Institute, for example. Um, but how did you first encounter sort of this idea of sustained music, the drone, essentially? Well, I think the idea of drone for me comes before I even was. I guess I was exposed to music because of the surroundings I was in, but before I even started learning music, because with vocal drone, for example, Ohm is is like a vocal drone, right? And I was first exposed to that just going to the mandir or, you know, the temple near my house. My family is a Jain family and they used to take me to, I mean, my parents would take me to the temple and then we would all kind of <laughs> sing Om. So that's kind of where I was first exposed to the vocal drone. And that was before I even, I guess, started singing or any of my learning in Indian classical. So that was my, my first introduction to it. And then it's just such a big part of your vocal training. I mean, still today, like when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I try to do, if I'm being good, is do my long note practice because that's what, you know, keeps my <laughs> voice uh, working. But also it really helps me center. And it's been the core focus of the practice for a long time. So that was one of the first things I was taught, like saw of course, the tonal center of, of Indian classical, like that is, I guess, almost like my first language. So it's, it's hard because I'm like thinking back to when I was introduced to it, but it's just been so many years, you know, it's like, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think it's like, a, it's a very much a fundamental of Indian classical music, the drone, of course, and it can be a part, it, it comes from the voice, but it comes from like a lot of different instruments too. And then there's the concept of drone as a support structure, right? So there are, I would say there's two different concepts here. There's like when the tanpura, which is what is mostly played, it's like the stringed instrument that is mostly played when someone's giving a performance, whether it's on a sitar or voice or any other instrument, like the tanpura kind of gives this background drone and I think it has a few different purposes one is to create like some sort of an ambient quietness so you can actually all of the noise of the the space kind of washes away and there's like a bed on which to create and then there's also of course the fact that it is the tonal center so it gives the musician the the sa so that they can you know improvise off of use it as a base and 
like depending on the rag, the drone will be different. So there is a lot of history embedded in that concept. And yeah, I think for me, um, similarly, it goes back much younger. I remember reading when I was kind of learning about minimalist music. I remember reading um, something that Limont Young had said because he grew up in Idaho. He was born in Idaho. And uh, he said something about like the landscape and just the space of the landscape kind of giving him this sense of continuation and just space. And I grew up in a similar environment. And when I think about it, I think it it kind of goes back to this is really, I don't know, I don't want to say physical, but like something very connected to like environment and surroundings. And I think that's why I feel more comfortable in places like Los Angeles, because it has a similar sense of space and a similar almost like negative space um, that I get from that kind of sound and that kind of music. And I think when I discovered that kind of music, it was me just sort of looking for a way to articulate that experience. But yeah, just like basic sounds, just like almost like the absence of sound or the absence of things as a way of allowing, creating a space, like you said, Arashi, like creating this sort of wash, taking away things to just create a space where other things can start to happen that wouldn't normally come into that space. So yeah, I think landscape has always been kind of an important thing for me. I think there's a moment, uh, Harry, in your book where you touch on um, Lamont Young's uh, origins and uh, living in Idaho and the natural landscape and, you know, your book charts uh, different areas of drone from the Indian subcontinent to the American minimalist. But your book starts with you at a doom metal concert, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A, a, a Roburn um, is, is a festival in the Netherlands in a place called Tilburg. And it's known for really supporting doom metal and stoner rock and so on. And But the program's actually generally a lot broader than that like you can see people like Diamanda Gallus play and you know kind of strange folk bands and you you know there's like Russell Haswell does like kind of laptop noise sets it's 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 basically kind of heavy music in all its many forms some some you know some of which isn't even electric you know so they, they take quite a broad view of what constitutes heavy music but anyhow I, I was at Roburn watching a band called Bong Ripper who they're an amazing band. They're from Chicago. They do this kind of really heavy, slow, minimal, instrumental doom. And yeah, I went, I, I, I mean, I discussed this in the book. I, I went to this show and came out and my friend said that, you know, it's like the Wailing Wall in there. And it kind of encapsulated what I've felt for a long time about doom and stoner rock and so on, which is that there's a ceremonial aspect to it when it's done properly, you know, and you, you feel like you're almost partaking in a kind of in sonic ceremony, you know, and there's, it's particularly at Roadburn. So people take their music really seriously there. There's no kind of milling between rooms or anything like that. Like people tend to kind of get there half an hour before a show, stay for the duration. Like the people are really, they're really into their music, which is really, it's really, it's a great place, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, originally the book was actually going to be a history of, of doom metal because I've been into that world for many years and writing on it for years. And, but as I kind of tracked back, I started to think, well, hold on, what's, what's the defining sonic attribute of the music and obviously yeah you have the you have the riff and you have the circling repetitious riffs and so on but then you've also got you know at the core of that you've got the drone so that's what led me on that on on a rather different path you know to cover lots more music than i was originally going to be writing about so i mean 
I mean, you asked me first experience with a drone. Well, it's really through that through that world, you know, kind of mid nineties, going from metal into the stoner scene. I suppose bands like Fu Manchu and Caius and Orange Goblin and Karma to Burn, Iron Monkey, Electric Wizard. You know, for the first time it's metal but it's not just about that high impacts it's not just about constant impacts and aggression it's about groove and it's about putting people in a kind of hypnotic state and that's so interesting to take that really aggressive loud music and do something quite subversive with it so i mean that was that was what really kind of got me got me into that and then if you're talking about pure drone i suppose from there onto like earth and sun and from there tracking back to the kind of you know we're talking about yeah lamont young and the velvets and so on you know You know, drone is this, it seems to be this like paradoxical thing that is a lot of it is rooted in its durational nature. And yet also it kind of neglects and strips away aspects of music that rely on time, such as, you know, melody. And in terms of stretching out moments and warping our senses, you know, how is it that drone sort of transforms our perception? Maybe I want to ask uh, Sarah to start on this one because a lot of your music is rooted in. Uh, I guess, stillness. To be honest, I don't know. I think about this a lot, actually, and I've been thinking about it a lot more in the last year and a half or whatever. I think in earlier years, previous years, I would describe my music as being very textural and being about timbre and, and this very, like, harmonic sense of experience. And I always knew that the temporal aspect was there, but I wasn't thinking about it in exactly the same way. And I think having the live aspect of my musical practice taken away from me, uh, I was suddenly confronted with just how important the temporal aspect is. And then also coming back to playing live shows recently, it like hit me like a ton of bricks of like how important the duration is um, for it. And you can, I think you can simulate, because duration I think is also like a, um, it's a relative term. It doesn't necessarily, you know, something, can happen in the span of five minutes that doesn't need to take two hours or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's about the the context of it and what it needs. But yeah, I, it's something that I feel like I'm still trying to figure out because I can talk for hours about the harmonic aspect and the textural aspect and how that works for me, but the temporal one, I'm not really sure. I know that it happens and I experience it and it's something that I, I think intuitively just having played live a lot and having, you know, just thinking about my music in, in this durational way and in these, how things progress and like pacing and things like that. But for me, it still feels, I think a little bit more intuitive and I, I don't really know how to explain how I come at those decisions or how it works for me. It just kind of, it feels right. <laughs> I do that, but I don't, yeah, I don't know how to make sense of it yet. I wonder if um, I wonder if there's a, a difference then uh, between how Arashi how how you create music because uh, in, as opposed to intuition your music is uh, interpreting rugs so there's almost like a set of rules that you have to kind of um, adhere to or kind of um, be mindful of and also your album Under the Lilac Sky is designed for listening specifically at sunset. And, and I wonder, like, you know, what's the temporal aspect there, designing music for a specific time? And is that going to take a specific length? Like, how long is a sunset? 
Well, I didn't think of that. <laughs> it's definitely not designed for exactly how long a sunset is because that varies depending on where you are, I think. Um, but uh, I'm not, I'm definitely, I don't consider myself a, a drone artist. Like it's not, um, at least till now has not been the kind of primary you know, thing that catches your attention, I guess. I, I use drone more as, I guess this makes sense given my my background, but I use it more to get into a musical state. It's to condition myself to get into a place where I can then create. It helps me set my personal center. And, and so once I have that, and for that, I need duration. I often, before I... I'm about to compose or play or sing. I will just play it for hours in the background if I have time. But I I use it more to create a bed for myself and then everything else kind of follows from there. Under the Lilac Sky is very melodic and very, you know, it's trying to represent the rag in the melodies that I'm exploring. And the drones in the album are definitely like in support. But I, I think that the durational aspect of it, I think for me, like they just have to be long, as long as I need them to be so I can kind of get lost and not have to think about what else is happening outside because then I'm in my own world. I think that's what the drone for me means. Like, uh, does it enable me in being able to be not distracted or not kind of like forget about the other things that exist so I can be able to tap into the rug and the intuition. It is intuition though, by the way, like it's, it is rules, but then that's very at the beginning and I'm definitely a student, like, you know, so there's certain rugs that I have an intuition and others where I'm still like, oh, wait a second, this doesn't sound right. How, do, how does it go? And then and I'll go listen to recordings and, you know, but the goal is to get to a place where you have an intuition for the rug and, and then you can just create. And then I wanted to say one other thing, which is coming back to the word om, actually. So om is a Sanskrit syllable, or it's a syllable that comes from the Sanskrit language, but it literally in itself is supposed to like represent infinite. Like it's, it's got this concept of time in it, which I think is cool. And I wanted to share that here. Um, and I, it has like a similar meaning for me, but of course there has literally been days like today I was writing music. I have a performance coming up. So I was kind of getting ready for, for that. And I've had a drone in the background for like seven hours, like just, just playing B flat. Cause that's what I sing. That's what my size is. And it just is makes me so comfortable. Like there's, there's, I think the goal would be to be able to hold that forever and be able to recreate that forever. And I think that's what infinite really means are like, you don't have to have someone, some other instrument play it. Like you can just be it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Some thoughts on that. Harry, you mentioned in, um, in your book, you start off with drones that may or may not have been used for a purpose in uh, a cave in Malta? Yeah, but it's not not a cave, it's the, hyper, the hypogeum, which is like a burial chamber. It uh, it's actually predates the pyramids. It's an amazing space just outside Valletta. There's a particular chamber down there that's come to be known as the Oracle Chamber. And it has this amazing natural resonance of around 20 seconds. And along the back, there's a 
little ridge which looks remarkably like an acoustic resonator panel of the type that you'd have in a you know a classical concert hall. And there's been quite a lot of debate with historians and academics between there's kind of two sides. Some some people think that it's likely that the resonance would have been noted once the chamber was built and that it would have been used in, in ceremonies. I mean, we know very little about this civilization. They left, left no written trace whatsoever. It's not like Egypt where you've got a kind of hieroglyphic code. There's nothing like that. There's So we're, we're in the realms of kind of informed guesswork, really. Um, but other archaeologists believe that it's likely that it was designed specifically to maximise the reverberant potential. So when you go down there and you hear the resonance, it's highly unlikely that it wouldn't have been noted and that it wouldn't have been used, particularly given that we're talking about a civilization who weren't used to those acoustic effects above ground. It's not like now, like, the, you know, in, in the modern world, we hear really interesting echoes every time we go into an underground car park. You know, we hear natural resonance in many different ways because of because of the modern world. But back then, you know, if the only time you were ever hearing that kind of resonance was down in the hypogeum, it, it's, I, I think, and a lot of historians think, you know, it's, it's highly likely that it would have been used in some capacity, that it would have been a functional space. I mean, it, the hypogeum was a functional space. It was a space designed specifically to store bodies. We know that, you know, there was something like 5,000 skeletons found down there. And it was a place of, of remembrance. I mean, you don't, tunnel down it would have taken centuries to build you don't tunnel down into limestone for no reason you know it's it's there for a reason so it's a functional space you know i I think it's highly likely it's people were going down there to remember to remember the dead you know and what what form the drone took we don't know the other thing they've got in the hypogene in the oracle chambers there's a strange little uh uh kind of carved area in in one of the walls and it may be that somebody would have spoken into that to maximise the uh, resonance. There's a really interesting guy actually called Paul Devereaux, and he proffered quite an interesting theory because on the ceiling, they've got these red ochre spirals. And he said, hey, maybe the red ochre spirals were a representation of the waveform. You know, maybe it was a case of these spirals being some kind of representation of what was happening down there sonically. You know, we don't know that, but it's, it's, an, it's I think that's a nice, it's a nice theory. So, yeah. Ancient burial chambers, you know, um, is it fair to say that drone is a universal language? I wonder. Yes, I think so. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely a universal language. I think it's really interesting listening to what Arushi was saying earlier about infinity, because I think that if we think about music, there's certain universal constants within music. You know, I think, say, the love song is one, the process song is, is another. You know, I think regardless of what culture you're from or what part of the world you're from you will find a love song you'll find protest songs you'll find because these are emotions that are perhaps too large to be held in so we write it out we sing it out we play it out you know it has to come out somehow those big emotions but if you think about the drone why do so many people so many religions so many cultures gravitate towards the drone i think again we're we're, we're tapping into as, as Arushi said earlier, the idea of the infinite, I think that's another universal constant for humanity because we, we're all aware that our time is is finite on this world. We're, we're perhaps the only species that is aware of that. You know, we know that we're only here for a short amount of time and we we, we don't like it and we try and deal with that, you know, and it's the, the idea of infinity is an absolute head fuck for anyone. It's, it's I, I, I don't think anyone could come up against the idea of infinity and not have their mind blown by that idea you know and I, I personally i believe that 
the drone is is a way of wrestling with that, a way of making, trying to make sense of, of our our briefness on the planet and the fact that time carries on, everything carries on, but we don't. So, And another question is, um, you know, have any of you had any particularly weird or unusual experiences um, while listening to drone music, listening to sustained music, like changes in your perception or, um, you know, perhaps any transcendental experience even? I was mentioning earlier, Eliane Radigay, I think the piece is Kaima, it's the third movement and it's an hour long and it's really, I find it so unbelievably soporific to the extent where I can't really listen to it without falling asleep and having really strange kind of lucid dreams. You know, it's really, it's, it's, it has an amazingly soporific effect on me. It's, it's, it's strange because drone-based music often, it d- doesn't generally have that effect on me, but that, that sp- specific piece really does. Yeah, I feel like I haven't had anything like weird that I would categorize as weird, but I feel like every time I listen to something like that, something happens. And I think, again, that's kind of the point, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I would say like maybe every time (laughs) there's something, unless, you know, my mind isn't there, my mind can't be there. I'd say maybe almost the opposite where like, it's remarkable when it doesn't happen and it's weird in a bad way because it's, you know, you feel bad that you just had this opportunity of this experience and it, it you couldn't go there like it happens sometimes with with performances where something feels off or something else is going on or whatever and you just can't go there you know but you have to because you're playing live i find this concept of drone music as separate like separate from drone itself interesting like what what is drone music exactly i mean i guess someone composed it or put this drone together as opposed to just a instrument playing a drone on itself because like I list like I've mentioned earlier like I have a drone playing it all like a lot of times just in my home so I don't really know if that's music <laughs> but I I have definitely I think the goal would be to have a transcendental experience <laughs> with it but that hasn't happened yet to hear the full conversation, become a Crap Magazine supporter and log into crapmagazine.digital. Crap Audio.